Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. When you hear someone talk about blood sugar, you might zone out. That's because a lot of us think that it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes. But blood sugar is a topic that everyone should understand. If you want to feel good and have energy, you need to balance your blood sugar. Research shows that even healthy people have wild swings in their blood sugar right after they eat, and spikes in blood sugar make your pancreas work harder. They also make you older, and they put you at a greater risk for weight gain, heart attack, and stroke. Here's why I'm talking about this. Bioptimizers has a new product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough. You take two capsules 15 minutes before a meal. Your body will push carbs and glucose into your muscles for use as fuel instead of fat. That means you get stable energy and you don't have that post-meal crash. Better yet, you can improve your workouts and get better gains at the gym. But the biggest benefit is that it'll improve your overall health. Just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health for an exclusive 10% off. For 25 years, I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is senolytics. Senolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. They live for a long time, and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called Qualia Senolytic. Your podcast sponsor, Neurohacker Collective, created Qualia Senolytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Synolytic. It's upped my energy level even more, and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30 and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia Synolytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com Dave and try it risk-free for up to 100 days. Use code DAVE at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave. Use code DAVE. Today's cool fact of the day is that the amygdala, part of your brain that's sort of the fight or flight part of the brain, is on average 13% larger in young kids with autism compared to kids without autism. Interesting how actually the structures in the brain change in size based on what you're going to have to do with your brain or what your brain is set up to do. And it's no coincidence that I'm talking about autism and the cool fact of the day, because today's guest is a former faculty member of Yale Medical School and a, a pediatric specialist who is the co-founder of the Defeat Autism Now Protocol and the CVO of Autism360.org. So this is one of the guys on the forefront of fighting what's become uh, an epidemic in fact, I've seen some studies that one in eight kids being born today have something in that spectrum. And it depends on which statistics you look at, but whatever it is, they're getting bigger and it's very frightening. This is something that matters to all of us because the things that make kids autistic don't help the rest of us perform better either. So this is a conversation that has to do with underlying things that are probably making you weak and things that really make babies weak. This is going to be a very fruitful conversation. Today's guest is not only an expert in autism, but he's also the author of Detoxification and Healing, The Key to Optimal Health. 
and he's one of the leading clinicians in the field of autism who practices functional medicine in Sag Harbor, New York. And his name is Sid Baker, or Dr. Sidney Baker, officially. Uh, Sid, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Why did you decide to go into pediatrics and then autism? What drove you to do that? Well, pediatrics uh, came first. I was uh, going to take a residency in psychiatry, so I took an internship in in pediatrics at that time, and I decided that if I was going to be a psychiatrist, I wouldn't be able to touch people, which I was pretty good at. And I liked children, and my mentor was a pediatrician, so I figured, let's go on with my internship and residency in pediatrics, and that's how I got launched. I did a, I did a mini residency in OBGYN because I wanted to find out where babies came from. <laughs> how long ago was that? That was 19, uh, let's see, 66 in there. Long time, about 50 years. How much has the practice changed over the time of, of your career? I and mean, it has to just be astounding for you. I mean, you're, you're one of the, the celebrated guys who developed integrative medicine as we know it today. Like, like you've really played a, a substantial role in it, but you've watched this, this just unimaginable amount of transformation in medicine. What's it been like to watch that? Like, what's changed? It's been very discouraging because mainstream pediatrics and mainstream medicine has, has, has changed very little, I think. Uh, certainly surgery and, and lots of uh, diagnostic techniques have, have introduced all sorts of wonderful ways of seeing people. But the ways that uh, doctors have of seeing their patients in a way that I'll refer to in a moment has uh, changed very little especially as regards information technology, which is the most important tool for being seen by doctors in terms of the, the details that make a person an individual. An individual. And so I'm, I'm quite discouraged at how slowly my profession has let go of some of the old language that we've been taught and been unable to latch on to a new language that has to do with the way uh, human beings can be seen as individuals and and have, and have the, the individual be the target of treatment rather than the disease. When, what led you to start the Defeat Autism Now? That This was very disruptive. I, I've been following the autism, uh, the problems with autism for many years. My first book was about epigenetics and what do you do before pregnancy to reduce the incidence of autism. Given everything we know, I'm not saying I know that this is all clinically studied. I'm just saying directionally, this is what the evidence says is most likely to help. Uh, because I was concerned about this in, in runs in my own family, Asperger's does, uh, and I was concerned about it in my own kids. And so I, I took just a, a passionate view into this. 1,300 references went in, into that book. And that's really what lit up my understanding of a lot of this stuff. And at the same time that I was, I was doing that work for kind of a selfish reason, you had started Defeat Autism Now. And, and I, I've had family members who, who, have, who are on the spectrum who've had great results with some of the things you talk about. What, what was the spark that led you to create Defeat Autism Now? But it came in stages. When I was um, uh, in my first part of my career as a practitioner, I was attending physician in a, a residential place for people with serious disabilities. And I was doing a routine examination, an annual exam on a little 14-year-old boy sitting on the end of the table. He was autistic. And he was the first autistic kid that I ever examined early in my career. And I went to, to look in his eye with my ophthalmoscope. And um, 
he hauled off and slugged me right between my eyes and my eyeglasses went in two pieces. Oh, no. In retrospect, I, I realized that he was saying to me in a very, very, very articulate way, this nonverbal kid, he was saying to me, you're looking at me, you're looking into me, but you're not seeing me. And I became intrigued by the accuracy of his blow, and uh, I was, so to speak, struck by it. Uh, that um, I should maybe think more about what this is all about. This was 1971 or two. And um, subsequently, when I became director of the Gazelle Institute in New Haven, I saw a lot of people with developmental problems, but I kept my regular practice, which had made me think about things in a new way. I saw a little girl with eczema all over her, and um, I treated her with some antifungal medicine. That's why her neighbor had said her to Sid, and she said, oh, you know, you've got this thing after you took antibiotics, and now it's all over her. Look at her. She's a mess. The person who could tell you about this is Sid, because he knows about antibiotics and funguses. So she came to see me, and uh, I treated her with some nice statin, and it went away completely. And her autism went away again. And this was in a matter of six weeks. Well, wow. again, I was struck. Yeah. So over the next few years, I became more and more interested in the biology of autism, and at a certain point, as I was, became more uh, puzzled by the gastroenterology, the immunology, and the other ologies, I said to the mother of one of my patients, an autistic boy, I said, boy, I, uh, I just am overwhelmed by all these different uh, biochemical and immunological things that are entering into this landscape. I wish I could get some smart people together and you know, have a conversation about this. And she said, well, if you, if, you could, if you want to do that, I'll help pay for it. She happened to be affluent. And I happened to have lunch with Bernie Remlin a couple of weeks later. And I said, Bernie, can't we get some people together? Of course, Bernie knew everybody. <laughs> I didn't know many people. I knew John Pangborn, uh, who was my biochemical tutor. So in 1995, we got a, 30 people in a room in Dallas, parents and physicians and scientists, all in the same room. It was an unusual meeting in that regard, if not unique. We just loved it. We had a great time for three days. We, we came up with uh, the results of an effort, a serious effort, to find common ground. And, and as you perhaps know, many meetings involved academics are mostly pissing contests. <laughs> and this was a, a, a really a serious thing. To, to If somebody said something that didn't agree with someone, uh, even the high-ranking academics who were there, like Sudhir Gupta, who had four full professorships at the University of California, a brilliant immunologist and leader in the field, if somebody said something about homeopathy or chiropractic or something, he let it go. Everybody just wanted to find what we can agree on. And I had a piece of chalk and, and blackboard, and I tried to make a diagram of what we agreed on, and that became the basis of what now still stands up as a pretty good map of the universe. And, and that was the what became the the beginnings of defeat autism. Now, that was it. That was when when Bernie bless his heart, he, he called it defeat autism. Now, which I hated, but I loved Bernie. So, but if he wanted that, we had that. But <laughs> I thought it was a terribly masculine name. Yep. And also very military. Going to defeat it, you know. It, and yeah. And it uh, it has have some other objections to it. Will come to perhaps, but, what, but I think. This, it, it's a bit of a side note, but there's something that, that drives me crazy. There's a, a new movement now where, where people are doing this thing. That they're calling it fuck cancer, and they're wearing T-shirts that say that. I'm like, 
Now, I know what the F word means, and when you do that, that's an act of reproduction. So telling people to reproduce their cancer is probably not the right way. <laughs> I'm just saying here. But yeah, that, that whole militaristic thing doesn't seem like that's the way people get stronger. It, it's never worked. Right. So, so I'm with you there. Yeah. And it also buys into the whole thing that makes me craziest, which we may come to, is considering that a disease is an entity, therefore it's something you can go after, which is completely the, the opposite of what we came up with, which was or what nature put in front of us, which was a spectrum, which is yeah. a much better metaphor with what we're talking about. So, so what, if someone's listening to this, like, look, I don't have autism, at least I don't think I have it, although I may have ADD, which is in the direction of, of those things, uh, and I may not know it, or I don't have anyone with, with autism in my life right now, why should they care about what we're talking about? Like, like, what's in this conversation for every single person listening? Great question. It's because autism is simply the worst case of all chronic illness. Yes. It is, it is the, just the, the way that all, 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 all chronic illness is one thing. It's all connected. We're living in a systems environment, but even if you don't think that way, the evidence is that all chronic illness has to do with some very fundamental changes in people that have to do with something called loss of immune tolerance. Tolerance is a very important feature of complex systems. Tolerance and diversity are two complex virtues of a complex system. Well, life is a complex system. Your body is a complex system. And when it loses tolerance, it, and, and allergy and autoimmunity are sort of examples, if, if your listeners are wondering, well, where is he going with this? Talking about allergy and autoimmunity is kind of the examples of what loss of immune tolerance gets expressed as. But it, a, a way of putting it is that it makes people sensitive. And what we see in our children who have autism is that they're exceedingly sensitive so that their senses, hearing, taste, touch, feeling, and all those things, even feeling yourself in your own body, which is a sense, there are 12 senses, you know, not just five, they, these senses are too delicate. They, they do not have the, the usual kind of blanket between us and the world so that it, it crowds in on the person and makes them funny, it makes them sensitive to loud noises and things like that. But, it, but the immune system and the brain are part of the same system. And the immune system is doing the same thing. It becomes excessively sensitive to things and it reacts to things in ways that are similar to the way we react to germs, and that is caused inflammation. And when inflammation affects different parts of the body, the digestive tract, the skin, the brain, it swells up, it changes its capacity for functioning, and that gets expressed in difficulties that have to do with the way the body moves. In the case of speech, a lot of what the problems with speech in children is not that they, in autistic children, it's not that they don't need, know the words, they can't move their tongues properly because a certain part of the brain that moves your tongue, which does all kinds of automatic things in your body. I mean, imagine if you had to think about where you're going to put your tongue when I say, this boy, if I had to think through how I'm going to put yeah. my tongue in my lips. So speech is an automatic function. And like moving your bowels, I mean, if you had to think the, your food through your digestive tract, you'd go crazy with that. So this is all an automatic thing that's in the brainstem. 
it's 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 it, the lower part of the brain called the reptilian brain is all you need to run a really good reptile and this part of the brain is injured in our kids and it gets injured because that part of the brain is open to the blood in a reptile that part of the brain needs to sort of taste the blood as it goes by to see what's going on in the environment it's an old-fashioned system and it gets it's very it's not it's not appropriate to the modern world where your digestive tract is all screwed up with different kinds of poisons in it. Two kinds of poisons, environmental poisons, or, and, I, and I should say your body and your blood and your digestive tract. It gets poisons that are in there because they come from the environment. There's also poisons that are made by germs that live in the digestive tract. Yeah. And those germs get screwed up by antibiotics. It gets to be crazy. And this is what made that little girl with eczema. Her immune system got sensitive to something that made her skin break out. But instead of putting her on a diet to find out if she was allergic to lemons or, or, or cheese, I simply said, well, let's just try some Nystatin and bingo, it went away. So Nystatin, for, for people listening, Nystatin is a, a very common antifungal agent that's exceedingly safe and one that, that played a substantial role in me getting my brain back as, as well. Okay, uh, just so for people listening who aren't medical. So um, so the lesson is that... that um, Autism is a collection of things that spreads off in every direction. That's why the word spectrum has come in. Yeah. And the word spectrum has entered our language like a Trojan horse, bringing that notion into our vocabulary so that we learn to think about illness in a different way. And we stop thinking about it as a thing that attacks people. Instead, we think about it as a complex uh, expression of all kinds of imbalance in people, but in particular with autism that leads to an increase in sensitivity, which is associated with autoimmune inflammation and allergic inflammation. So when when I was a kid, I had OCD, ODD, ADD, and, and most of the symptoms of, of Asperger's syndrome. And I've gone through and I've actively like hacked those things in various ways and turned down my autoimmunity and changed my brain. But one of the things that is brainstem mediated that I have not yet fully mastered is uh, sensory processing of sounds. So I found, because I do this sort of thing, there's spectrums of sound where my brain doesn't hear very well on the left side versus the right side. And my ability to discriminate human voices in a loud environment doesn't happen in the brainstem the way it's supposed to happen. Like I have to think and concentrate, just like you're describing, in order to hear like in a noisy bar, like, like it, it takes a huge amount of effort for me to be able to hear what someone's saying. Whereas, as far as I, I understand, normal people with without my brain, they can magically just pick up what the person next to them is saying, despite the fact that it's really loud. Uh, which seems like a complete mystery skill to me. When you come across these kids or adults like that, and you get rid of the toxins and things like that, do you also get to rewire the brain, or is it stuck that way? You get to rewire the brain. All right. Um, now, uh, so much to say. Uh, the yesterday I saw a boy for the first time. He came to see me from West, from from Canada, from British Columbia, and uh, he uh, his dad had a, a, a video to show me on his on his iPhone of him playing the the, the cello. Well, this boy had absolutely incredible pitch. 
he could tell you in a phrase, listening to a, a, a Mozart uh, symphony, what the key of the symphony was written in. Wow. Right? And he could listen, he could tell what all the s- instruments are doing in the orchestra at the same time. Just wow. amazing. Now, this kind of sensitivity is where it's working for him in that way, because he has become so finely tuned that he's, he's a genius. He's, he's, very, he's a very bright future uh, because he has this special skill, and he will keep that. Now, um, in, you know Norman Deutsch and the book uh, The Brain's Way of Healing. If, 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 the, if people who are interested in this want to find the, the book that is the most important uh, uh, envelope in which to put the problem you just placed uh, with the sensitivities or difficulty with sounds, um, Norman Deutsch had a, a, a daughter who had all kinds of difficulty with sounds and also had behavior problems that were really way out there. And she was a very handicapped person, even though she was a, a good person. She had problems in her mood and behavior. He finally took her to Tomatis, a, a <laughs> person in, in, in France, who, uh, who treated her with sound therapy which is a, a, a popular and a successful way of handling children with these sensory problems in the autism spectrum. And she became a perfectly fine young woman. And, uh, and that's what got uh, Norman Deutsch on the, on the, he's a psychiatrist in Toronto, to, on the trip of, of writing these books he's written, which are absolutely wonderful books about how the senses are the royal road to the brain. You and I were brought up thinking that the brain is inside this big bone and you can't really get at it. You can biopsy people's livers and skin and all that and you can put a, a flashlight down their esophagus or up their butt, but you can't, you can't get into the brain very easily. And then there's this thing called the blood-brain barrier. It makes it sound like, oh, God, we'll never be able to yeah. get this drug into the brain. So what George's book points out is that of course, the senses are, are the masters of the brain in some ways. The, the senses were evolved in some ways before the brain did, or you know, it, the brain came along afterwards in the sense of getting bigger. But the senses provide access to the brain that is much more intense than any biopsy or, or uh, endoscopy because it gives a way of providing a therapeutic signal that then encourages the brain to rewire itself. It's called neuroplasticity. And so what we were taught, I was taught, was you you hurt your brain. I mean, maybe if you're less than five years old, you can get some of it back, which is wonderful, but not so. Now, even at my age, entering my 80th year, I can keep my brain developing and rewiring by doing certain kinds of exercises like walking and keeping my eyes open, which is the way (laughs) the human species evolved, walking fast through the woods and staying staying alert. And this, just in his book right away, you you see this, the the, uh, example of this sensory input of just walking and looking is good for your brain and in ways that are measurable as regards rewiring. And that means new neurons new neurons and new connections between neurons. So the, 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 the gate is wide open if we just get people to understand that this is not, uh, this autism came along with 
a bad reputation. Uh, when I was in second year of medical school at the Yale Child Study Center, they showed us a movie. Now, we hardly saw any movies when we were medical students. Everybody would fall asleep. But there was a movie, a dignified doctor crosses mahogany deck, and there was Jane and George Smith, the parents of a kid who, of course, was in the other room. And the doctor was saying, well, I, I, uh, I want you to know the most important thing to know about little Georgie is that uh, he's stuck this way. And, uh, and so it's really very important for you to know, don't look for answers. I, I, I remember exactly where I was sitting in that room when I saw that. And, and I, I, I've forgotten just about everything else that I learned in medical school, but I remember that intensely. I was shocked. Yeah. And, and especially in retrospect, I was shocked. More so as, as it, I metabolized that experience. I thought, where did they go? Where do you go? You go to the Sloan Kettering and you have the worst cancer in the world. Say, so we have a protocol for you. You have a kid who can't, is not developing well. They go, oh, well, you're, you're screwed. There's nothing you can do. <laughs> and, and this reputation is, 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 is one of the many factors that have troubled the whole thing, the whole understanding of autism, which is more screwed up than any other. There's no other illness that I know of this. So intentionally misunderstood by some people, and so uh, controversial, let's say, that has gets uh, people really out of joint. One of the things that that irritates me about the whole conversation is people say, "Well, what causes autism?" and and, and it, it it's like, "What causes wind?" <laughs> like like lots of things, right? But they they stack up, and, and if you get a wind storm, it was a whole com- a conflagration of things. What do you say when someone says to you, what causes autism? Like, how do you answer that question? I, I answer it to, by pointing to, uh, I can't call him a friend because he, he's from the 72nd story of the ivory tower and I, I work in the trenches, but he's an acquaintance. Uh, his name is Yehuda Schoenfeld. He's uh, arguably the top immunologist in the world. You wouldn't think in such a competitive uh, uh environment of egos that anybody could actually be the top guy but but he really in my estimation he has written many he's edited many big books and the first sentence in one of his books is also the first sentence that um, he uttered when we were at a think tank together and uh, i was he was opening the meeting and i was going to talk about helminthic therapy at the end of the meeting oh neat and he said he said until proven otherwise some would say that all chronic illness is autoimmune and then he says, if you read the 52 chapters, this is, this is the first sentence in his big, one of his big books, if you read the 52 chapters from this book written by experts in immunology and infectious disease from around the world, you'll come to the conclusion that all chronic illness is, after all, infectious, including autoimmunity. So what yes, doing making, I, I absolutely agree with that. Cool. Yeah. So he's making a sandwich, and the, uh, the top of the sandwich is autoimmunity, and underneath is the microbiome. Yeah. The germs are that we're supposed to become well acquainted with and have a friendly relationship, but when they get out of balance, it screws you up and gets the immune system screwed up and it gets it doing inflammation that is ill-advised, but it's getting bad advice from, from uh, the this distortion that's being created by a chemical environment, an immunological environment, and a, and a microbial environment that has shifted dramatically in our population over the last hundred years. Undoubtedly, some of the reason that I weighed 300 pounds and, and had a lot of these autoimmune issues 
is, and probably still do have, have a few, but far fewer, um, is that I was on antibiotics for 15 years for chronic strep throat and sinusitis. And that was itself caused by living in a water-damaged basement full of toxic mold. And, and, and I've, been, I've been studying the interaction of what happens when something in the, in the environment changes that causes a change in the microbiome that then causes autoimmunity. And it is a, a shockingly complex problem. And, and if, if you're a parent or you're, uh, uh, someone, someone sitting here saying, well, how do I apply this to myself? Like, like, given that incredibly complex world, what do you do? First, I say it's not that complicated. All right, good. Not that complicated. Because under the banner that you would have shown, fellow, bless his heart, this wonderful, brilliant man has given us of saying all chronic illness is autoimmune. Then you have to say, okay, what is there for autoimmunity? Autoimmunity and allergy are loss of immune tolerance. So now, how do you restore immune tolerance? So you go find a part of the world where nobody has immune intolerance, where they're not allergic and they don't have autoimmunity. So I spent two years as Peace Corps volunteer and physician in Chad, Africa. So I thought thousands of people over a whole year. And I didn't see anybody with an autoimmune disease. I didn't see anybody with allergies. The only people who wheezed were people who had hookworms migrating through their lungs, but they weren't allergic to them. It was because the hookworms are going through trying to get to the gut. And so I came away with a, a a sense that the difference between people living the old-fashioned way with a different kind of hygiene, meaning soap and water and toilets, and our culture, which has all kinds of chronic illness that they don't have there. And over the years, this developed into the understanding that people who live the old-fashioned way, who have a different kind of microbiome with somewhat larger germs in it than bacteria, (laughs) they don't get autoimmunity. So then... Uh, about 15 years ago, Joel Leinstock at the University of Iowa got a bunch of people with ulcerative colitis together, and they were about to have a colostomy, and they were really knocked down, drag out ulcerative colitis and autoimmune inflammation of the gut. And he said, okay, let's give them the eggs of the pig whipworm, because the pig whip farmers in, in, yep. in uh, Iowa don't have autoimmune diseases because they have infection from the these gut little germs that live in the pigs. I, I did that nine years ago. I drank pig whipworm eggs. So yeah. 100% with you here. Yeah, so I'm with it. And, and I, I, got, I got on the boat very early in the game. And, and so this uh, has opened up a way of understanding the restoration of immune tolerance by restoring the microbiome. And nowadays what we do, we meaning I and a few other doctors, whom I, I'm training other doctors to do this now, is I raise these things called HDCs, which are um, I, a, a much less expensive and easier way to get the same kind of thing. I think they're more effective. And, um, and then you can get these from on, online, just as you, as you used to be able to get, as you can get TSO as well, what you were just, you were just talking about. What, what does HDC stand for? You ready? Yep. Hymenolepis diminuta. Cystocercoides. Sounds delicious. It's great. <laughs> and we call it HDCs. I call them primobiotics. I, I, have, I, had a, I have a patient who had skin, skin problems all over her. She was a very uh, um, dignified woman about my age who used to be a foreign correspondent for a large news agency. So she's been around quite a bit. 
And she said, I was calling these things little dudes that I used because of a story that goes back to William Parker who at, at Duke University who taught me how to do this. And she said, well, Sid, that's too cute a name. This is serious stuff, you know. This is changing the immune system in a very good way. And look at me. I've benefited from this. You should have a, you should, they're, they're sort of like probiotics, right? And I said, Jeanette, thank you. That is such a gift from you to me. Uh, I, and she said, I will think about something. So I thought to myself, primobiotics, primobiotics. So that's, that's what I call the ones that I raise in my little ranch here. And I raise these things and, and give them to my patients and the patients of other doctors. But for the, for the mass market, um, of, of, the mother of one of my patients, uh, who became interested in helminthic therapy, she asked me to introduce her to William Parker. And she started a company called Biome Restoration. And you, it's biomerestoration.com, and you can go get these things and, um, and you know, take a swig. And the, 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 the probability in this adventure is very high, considering it's a, you know, medical kind of therapy. It's really a nutritional thing. It's more than, because this is in your food supply already. The, the things that are, the little creatures there are, come from the grain beetle. The grain beetle lives in grain. And so when you eat your bread or your whatever, your rolls, your pasta, it comes from a grain silo originally. And this is contaminated with beetles, and you can't, rid of, you can't get rid yeah. of these beetles. And so it's already in your food supply, except these are sort of the living version of it, but they're tiny and they're tasty. And, uh, and, they have, and the chances of getting better from autoimmune allergic problems with these things is like way over 50-50, which is pretty good odds on the doctor's so, side. So you're basically just eating beetles. Well, I take, I, I, this morning I was up at 3 o'clock and I sat there with my microscope and I have uh, a little scalpel and some tweezers and I take the beetle apart, get the abdomen, open it up, take the stuff out, look under the microscope, and I, I see these little guys. They're very cute. It, it's, it's really fun to do, although this was four hours of work with a microscope, so it's, it's, it's tedious. But, but uh, they, are, they have a little round head and two little dots with a little thing in the middle and another thing down here so it looks like a face. It's very haunting. And <laughs> there they are looking back at me, and they have kind of a tail. They have, as they get older, they get longer tails. And I try to select the ones with the long tails that look really good and put them in a little salt water and I send it FedEx to my patients here and there. We send out a whole bunch of FedEx packages today. So this is a, um, this is, um, this whole idea, if it comes under the banner of, of Schoenfeld's statement, if it restores immune tolerance and all, all chronic illness is autoimmune, yeah. we're talking about a pretty big idea. And um, so, on the other hand, it's the kind of idea that the medical profession doesn't like. It says that there is a treatment, for, one treatment for many diseases. And if you want to get a ticket out of town, maybe on a, you know, tar and feathers for a costume, right. you say you have a, a treatment for more than one disease. It's coming around because if you look at TV, they have these drugs on TV you know, the nice lady dancing across the screen and saying, for your rheumatoid arthritis or your colitis or whatever it is, this could kill you, but it usually should take it. Um, and, um, and so they are advocating there things that are all different autoimmune things, you know, psoriasis and 
colitis and these things, or you get Humira from all of them. But of course, the toxicity of those is enormous. But the the stuff that we're talking about is safe and um, and it's good for autoimmune problems and allergies. It works dramatically, and um, it's uh, so. If you take the basic decision making formula for medical decisions, I call it BROCS, B-R-O-C-S, B for benefit, R for risk, O for odds, C for cost, and uh, S for stakes. And the stakes are high. It changes the whole construction of this word, because if the stakes are high, even if the odds are low, and we're Mm. not talking about low odds here, but even if it's one in 10, what the heck? Yeah. If there's no risk to it, you go for it. If it's you know the cost <laughs> is minimal, some of these things that they have on TV that for your autoimmune things are like thousands of dollars a month. We're talking about pocket change to 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 make a trans transformation in people that is just stunning. So I've been tra- I've, I've trained two doctors now to, to do this ranching that I'm doing, and I've got a couple more coming in the spring. It, is there any reason not to just eat the whole beetle? Yes, because <laughs> this, I'll tell you, because I was with them this morning. <laughs> I, I have my Petri dish, right? And I have my, my, my little ranch with the beetles in it. And I have them come out and I say, I'm sorry, but this is you have to volunteer to help humanity. And I cut them in half and take the abdomen and looked under the microscope. And, um, you know, I had to get 220 of these things as my quota this morning, my, my assistant, and in some ways my boss in this exercise, he asked me and she tells me I'm the one who's going to get, you know, these vials with lots of, of little guys in them. I open a beetle, nothing in it. Open the next beetle, nothing in it. Next beetle, two HDCs in it. So you can go through five or six beetles and have, it's like fishing, you know, you can stay out there all day in your canoe and you don't catch anything. And then all of a sudden you go out another day and the boat's you're way over your quota. So uh, the, the, the difference between one beetle to another is, is very big. And, and William Parker, who is the researcher behind this, uh, he's validated this. You know, there's mm-hmm. a, very, a very strange and threatening <laughs> or maddening distribution curve of, of how many HDCs are in a given beetle. So is there any reason I wouldn't just eat 50 beetles? I'm, I'm actually being very serious and, and, and not trying to be flippant, but it, it seems like if, that, if that's the problem, I, I'm sure I could pour chocolate on them and they wouldn't be that bad. Well, there's another reason. Okay. And that is there are, we call this helminthic therapy. And a yeah. helminth is a fancy word for a worm. These little guys that we're talking about are the larval form of what happens to an egg from a worm that's in a rat, which lives in the silo along with the, you know, with the other, okay. with the beetles or the, in the wheat or corn or everything, the egg of the, of the uh, rat tapeworm gets loose and is eaten by a beetle. Now it turns into an HDC and now it goes around and comes back into a rat and can become a tapeworm. But the ones you eat rarely become a tapeworm. And if you get a tapeworm, either you won the lottery, you can keep it because now it's your own pet tapeworm and it keeps your immune system in, in shape. <laughs> or you can go take a like a pinworm medicine kind of thing and get rid of it. Everybody knows about pinworms. It's not that different, really, because tapeworms, this type of tapeworm doesn't go crawl into your brain or your eyeballs or stuff like that. So it's, okay. it's a very safe kind of guy. 
So the reason that you don't um, want to do uh, just get some beetles is that there's a, there are two types of uh, tapeworms that come into rats. And there's one kind, the regular one, which is HDC, and there's the HN, uh, HDN, the nana, meaning the small one. And that's not good for you. So you don't want to get the wrong guy. So you open the beetles, and sometimes you find beetles have the wrong guys in them that don't have a smiley face, basically? We, we, we raise this, and we're very, very careful how we raise them. Okay. And make sure that they only have the, the HDCs and not the other kind. That's, that's, that needs special consideration. It, it sounds like uh, an application for, for automation and machine imaging <laughs> in order to, <laughs> to get those things at, at, at scale, because that, that, that sounds amazing. And I, well, the, I have the, to say, the I, ones from England that are, are imported from England, they're yeah. they're uh, produced in a somewhat more elegant way. Um, and under the microscope, they're, when you look at them, they just have the heads of the guys, and they've been sort of homogenized in some ways. But they still work, so they're much cheaper, and they're readily accessible by people who just you know don't need a prescription or anything. So, so I, I have to say I'm uh, I'm intrigued. I, I have a, a friend uh, and uh, uh, a guy who consults with me on on his nutritional stuff. A, a very very successful entrepreneur who takes uh, pig whipworm eggs eggs every two weeks. Yeah. And I, I've considered going back on the protocol. I I spent something like six hundred or a thousand dollars. But when I first tried this, I had to fly them in from Thailand. Like like the first studies had just come out. I'm like, I don't think I can afford six hundred dollars a month for pig whipworm eggs. But I I was intrigued to keep doing it, and I've managed to reduce my autoimmunity so much. But it's not gone, and I I'm I'm oh, quite interested in doing this. So do I need yeah. to go to a doctor get a prescription? I, I mean, how do you even ask a doctor for a prescription for pig whipworm eggs? Like, is this not in the PDR? <laughs> like, what do you write on the form? It, it seems well. You have to it, find. You know, I'm yeah. sure you're connected with some of the right doctors. Oh no, I, I, I'm married to a doctor. Like, like that's so, no problem. And now, um, and you, you should try the HDCs. So I, I absolutely will. But I'm thinking. So there's you know hundreds of thousands of people hearing this who are thinking, okay, I have allergies. Like I have environmental allergies. I have food allergies. Uh, I, I want to try HDCs. How would they go about it? Like, they like go on, they go on biomerestoration.com and just okay. buy some. That, okay, it's easy. It's that easy. straightforward. Okay, are yeah, these the ones you do, or are these the ones that are automated from England? Yeah, they 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 work. A minor, okay. minor biome restoration. Minor better than minor farm fresh. Those are <laughs> shipped. You know, it takes a while to get here from England. Sure. And and they're they're. I mean, the the woman who has the uh, the company is my friend. I'm not. I don't have sure. an interest in it except okay. for a friend. And uh, but there, there is work, and that's what everybody should get. Mine are more appropriate for what you might call a consultative triangle. Okay. Or you have a doctor who's like my friend, like Mark Hyman. Oh, and yeah. Mark's a mutual friend. I love Mark. Okay. So then, So you go to Mark and you say, you know, can I get some HDCs from you? And Mark says, yeah. And so you pay Mark. Mark pays me. I ship to you. Got it. And that way I'm... I'm I'm clean and send, uh, sending things to somebody who's not my patient. Of course, they're not a drug. They're more like a food. Right. They're like a probiotic. So they're they're like sushi, kind deal. of. <laughs> but I wanted to you know, stay on the high road while we get this thing started and not have any eyebrows raised. Because as you know, my profession can be quite mean-spirited about people who are sticking their necks out. And uh, so I, my neck is so far still connected to my body, but I'm 
you know, hoping to stay that way. I, uh, I appreciate your caution there. And I'm, uh, I'm really intrigued at, at using these, these essentially parasites as ways to modulate immune function because my experience is that almost everyone that I meet has these nagging health issues and they sort of tell themselves what I used to tell myself until I, I sort of hit the wall that, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's just a little thing. And, and one of your case studies here is uh, uh, a little girl with, with really dried and cracked and calloused feet, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and so you gave her HDCs and she got better? Like what, what happened? There? No, no. Like, what? Well, actually, she's, a, she's, a, she's a, uh, an example in, my, in, in the sort of paradigm of functional medicine. Oh, okay. Jeff Bland is the one who sort of laid out the chemistry yeah. and He's been on the show too. He's yeah. an amazing so guy. Okay. I came along and I wanted to medicalize it in the common sense realm. Yeah. And so, in the um, in my early days as a family practitioner, I ran into a, a lovely woman who from the Cape Verde Islands who had horrible migraine, and I thought I was being clever to send her the neurologist in our group. And he said she had needed this medicine. The medicine made her terribly sick. She went to a chiropractor, which in those days I didn't believe in, but now I do, of course. Uh, and uh, the chiropractor said to take magnesium and vitamin B6, and they were completely cured. It was amazing. And, and so then, of course, my colleagues at Yale said, do you mean to tell me that magnesium is the cure for migraines? And I said, no, <laughs> it's the treatment for this woman, not for the disease. But, you know, that is a whole yeah. problem in language here. So that was that made me think. Well, geez, then maybe she was sick because she had an unmet need, an unmet special need to get something, which if she got it would hasten nature's buoyant impulse toward healing. And then I had another patient who was a, I was just coming into my practice. He was a dad in the family. I was taking the interview. I said, "Do you have any surgery and any allergies?" And he, said, "Yeah, I have an allergy." I said, "What is it? Eggs." So I was writing down egg. And because I had some time in those days to, because we were just starting this new health plan. But what happens if you eat eggs? Well, he told me this amazing story. It was horrible sickness. It was so immediate that it, it wasn't that hard to figure out when he figured it out finally. But I said to myself, well, there must be other people out there with all sorts of different things that are, are causing the problem because they're allergic to it. And they haven't figured it out yet. So that was the avoid side of the paradigm. Yeah. So the, the, the paradigm says for chronic illness, maybe there's something you neither get or avoid or be rid of, that's detoxification, which if you take care of it, then it would favor nature's strong impulse toward healing. But nature does the healing. And so it's a, it's a paradigm that says it's common sense. And I thought, well... I'm not going to run in many people with problems like that, but I should be able to be on top of it for my patients and make sure I cover all the bases and be thorough. Well, it turns out that as soon as I started talking to people with chronic illness, it was over and over again, it fit the model of what was then called clinical ecology, now the American Academy of Environmental Medicine, or orthomolecular medicine, which is Linus yeah. Pauling and, and the question of getting right stuff. And so... This is this is the field of chronic illness, and um, and it, it it takes a different way of thinking, and also takes a different way of handling data, which is, as you know, maybe something that I've been very involved in. Yeah. 
And, uh, and, and it all has to do with the problem in our language that has to do with the thinking that the disease is the target of treatment and diseases are things and we have to stamp them out and we have to treat the disease with all these drugs rather than the individual is the target of treatment. So, oh, and then the little girl with it. So she was a little girl. I was director of the Gazelle Institute and she was referred to me by a psychiatrist who'd been seen for, for three years for horrible temper tantrums, just crazy. And she came from like a pretty normal family in Greenwich, Connecticut. And, um, and uh, she hadn't made no progress with this treatment, with psychotherapy. And so I saw her and um, as I did a physical exam, it turned out that she had the, her feet were all crust, uh, peely and cracked and shiny and kind of fissures between the toes kind of thing, very dry, weird feet which is a sign of unmet needs for fatty, for omega-3 oils. On the other hand, her hair was perfectly lustrous, and her skin up above was fine. So in her, it showed up in her feet. But she'd been taking cotton socks and steroid creams for three years, during the whole time that her head was being treated for the other end with psychiatry. And I gave her some flax oil, a tablespoon a day. Six weeks later, she was fine. She was a normal kid. So that was another one of these experiences that got me... Uh, it, it, it sort of shored up my, my self-confidence, let's say, that it was okay for me to think in a new way. What, what would you do if someone came to you and, and said, I'm allergic to eggs, help? I, first, I would say, how do you know? And okay. If they said, well, I had it on a, a, a blood test and it said I was allergic to eggs, I'd say, well, but do you eat eggs? And, you know, because sometimes the blood test is, shows that you have antibodies, but it doesn't prove anything. It gives you a working list to consider. Um, but uh, if they have an allergy to eggs, I would first of all say, well, how bad is it? And what happens with it? And what's the sequence of events? What's the evidence? And is it the egg yolk or the egg white and all that? But if it gets nailed down to be, yes, every time they eat eggs, they have hives or something, and they have to be so cautious about it that they can't eat out because you know, there might be egg in something. That was the problem with my patient because he, he described this thing. He goes to a dinner party. He tells the hostess, please don't put any eggs in anything. The eggs are in and he ends up on the floor with writhing in pain and just really broken up. So then I would say, well, um, there are medicines you can take that block allergies that are actually pretty safe. Not the antihistamines, you know, but there are things that you can take, uh, chromalin. They're pretty effective, but really, um, it just happens that I have this stuff called HDCs, <laughs> and you should give it a shot. You've seen HDCs reverse egg allergies? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. All right. So, so uh, this is something I haven't talked about on the radio before, uh, but I'm, oh, I'll just go there. So one of the prime foods that, that I recommend for people is, is, is raw egg yolks or very lightly cooked egg yolks. Right. Uh, and I know they're on your list of good foods as well. Yeah. And they're, they're such a superfood. On the Bulletproof diet, they're in, in the, the superfood, the, the Bulletproof zone. Uh, but they're also, eggs are a pretty common allergen. So when I was testing various things you could do, I went on kind of the Eskimo diet uh, just during the development of my book. So I went on 80 90% fat, protein, one serving of green vegetables a day for three months. No starch whatsoever, no sugar. And... By the end of three months, 
I had ruined my sleep quality. I had dry, no tears, really dry sinuses, and I gave myself an allergy to eggs that I'd, I'd never had before. And it manifested as a, a rash, like a really bad, bright red rash around my lips, which is really irritating. Uh, and it, they'd be like chapped and dry for a week after I had one egg. And with a, the working hypothesis there is that you need a certain amount of starch in order to make the polysaccharides that mucus is made of. So I, I'd lost the, the mucus lining in my stomach on this relatively extreme diet. And you got to see what happens when you're in extreme ketosis, right? So I've managed to, I'd say I'm 80% done with my egg allergy, but I still have a little bit of a symptom when I have eggs sometimes. So I tend to not eat them even though I love them. And so given that, that story there and that thing, um, you think HDCs would be the sort of thing to cause the immune system to self-regulate? Or, or is there any, any light you could shed on that given your experience? Well, um, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's a, a small light, but it's a small, small issue because yeah. uh, it's, it's now you've shown that your body has, has, is, is working its way toward getting over this thing. Yeah. And it needs a signal um, that, that is the kind of signal that the HDCs do that has to do with the restoration of what we call tolerance. Mm-hmm. The, 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 I think that if people understand these things with different words, it, it makes it easier for them to sort of grasp onto it. And the whole problem is the loss of tolerance. And, and as we said at the beginning, on, on both in the sensory and the, and the immunological aspects of things. But, uh, but the restoration of immune tolerance is now, it's well established from livestock's yeah. uh, research and from what, uh, what William Parker is doing at Duke that these uh, organisms restore immune tolerance in a very large number of people. And if they were widely used, as William Parker wants to do, he's working on trying to figure out, and this has to do with cancer as well, mind you. Oh, yeah. Uh, He's a cancer researcher. Um, So uh, if you can restore immune tolerance in people, the the, the net worth to the population would be just enormous. The amount of money that's being spent on the things we were talking about, all these expensive drugs and so on, without, you know, on the, on, the, on, the, on the television, they don't say, this will cure you. They said, this will reduce your symptoms. They have all these words that sound sort of good, but when you parse the word, it's like, well, it's not like this is going to get you better. So you, you get two more years of life or, you know, that kind of stuff. Which, uh, I mean, I don't mean to knock it, but really, uh, so... I think that um, that there may be a shift and there may be a new technology comes along. I'm sure there are people, including in Israel now, trying to figure out what is, this, what is the chemical that's released by the HDC that makes the immune system happier. But for right now, the old-fashioned way seems to be working. And I think it's a, an extraordinarily valuable uh, turn of events in, in medicine. The theory behind helminth helmet therapy, as I understand it, is is that we evolved to have certain of these organisms as part of our certain of these larger, non just bacteria or fungal organisms present in our body that they have a a function there, and that the loss of those has triggered some of this this lack of immune tolerance, and that by restoring these or some maybe some of the signaling molecules or something that they do that 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 we can have just better health. Yes. Yeah, the book to read is is by Moises uh, Velasquez Manhoff, and the, mm-hmm. the title is "The Epidemic of Absence." Yes, and and it's a it's a perfect title because it says this isn't because 
there's an epidemic going because there's a, a, a bad mosquito is stinging people, which is horrific. But it's because we are lacking something that we, we belong, we should have. And obviously, if, if 100 years ago, it became fashionable to have everybody have their thumbs cut off when they were born, <laughs> it, it, would, it would have caused a lot of trouble in our species because everybody would be going around with no thumbs and it would be handicapping. And so then if somebody came along and said, I have this great idea, let's stop cutting off thumbs. And then there would be a lot of religious objections to it or something else mm -hmm. like that. But finally, the, the guy who was putting the thumbs back would get the credit. Now, that's the same thing with these things. This isn't that we're introducing something new to people. We're putting something in there that has always been there. We co-evolved with these things. This is part of our body and it's part of our immune system. Now, exactly how it works that this conversation goes on with, our, with these microorganisms is, is mind-boggling because... Believe me, so there are some individuals who take one HDC, one of these little critters, and that's enough to change their immune system. It's just stunning. Wow. When I, when I did my TSO, this was years ago, and I got on board very early because I had a, had a patient whose mom was very inquisitive, and I told her the story about Weinstock, and, and she, she found, she said, oh, you can get these things now from Germany. She went over to Europe and got them, you know, that was before you could get them online. And so I got on the ground floor and, and, and I, my, my, uh, my wife had a little thyroid autoimmunity thing. And she was in standing in the kitchen taking her first dose of the TSO. I said, well, give me, let me have a taste because I'm just curious. Of course, it tastes like, I took a 1.5 ml. <laughs> Quarter yeah. teaspoon. I take a taste of it. No, it tastes like salt water. I thought nothing more. Right. Of it. it was May, a number of years ago. I have had allergies terrible all my life, ever since I went to camp and when I was six years old. And I've always had a handkerchief, and I've had runny nose and itchy eyes and everything. Wow! And four days later, my allergies stopped. And and that was the. I didn't take another dose of TSO until next year. I was a cheap date, right? But that is you incredible. How how amazing it is! Now, of course, I'm not I'm not naive enough to think that well, it couldn't be it could be a so-called placebo response. Of course, intention counts, and I'm right. all for it. We wouldn't get anything done without intention. But somehow, intention works a lot better <laughs> these days with HDCs and TSO and stuff like that. <laughs> what an elegant way of saying it. Yeah. Uh, I, I've heard a few people had just profound results from, from helmet therapy. And so I'm, I'm really intrigued to try this. And I'll report back for, for our listeners uh, what results I have there. I, I feel like I've, I've eliminated the vast majority of, of allergies that I suffered from. I always had them as a kid. I still react to toxic molds, still react to eggs and a couple other things. But I'm, I'm like feeling pretty free from all that stuff. The seasonal stuff is, is mostly gone, but not always. Yeah. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play with it. Well, your history of antibiotics as a child, of course, is the, that's the thing. That it's a smoking typical, gun. Typical story. It, it's, and uh, and, it's, and it not only involves that, but it involves birth by cesarean section. And then, I, I didn't, I didn't uh, have that, but I, I, was that. I was born with a cord wrapped on my neck, so I got a healthy dose of birth trauma, but I probably got the vaginal bacteria coming yeah, out. Yeah, that's what you want. Yeah. 
and uh, and that's a key thing. And for children, people who are, are planning to have a section, because now section is very oh, common. We've got to stop they, that. They should they should really know about something that I I labeled to the amusement of my colleagues in the think tank as the perineal picnic. Did you invent that, Sid? I didn't know that. I didn't invent it. I invented the name of it. Ah, well, still okay. Uh, respect. All right, tell people about that. This is so vital. So, so you're going to have a, a, a birth by cesarean section. It means the baby's not going to come out through your vagina. Your vagina is full of good germs. So they're so lactobacillus kinds of germs. It's the natural, normal germ population of a healthy vagina. The baby gets bathed in these as, as the baby comes out through the vagina. And it gets all over his skin and all over in his, in his mouth and so on. And even if this happens very quickly, I've delivered a number of babies when I did my OBGYN training and elsewhere. And sometimes a birth can happen pretty fast. And they go, how could he? He didn't have time to stop and eat there. But he gets these germs from the mother. And these are the gift to begin his own his or her own population that constitutes the flora, the microflora of the body's insides. And if the baby is deprived of this and has to get his or her flora from the nurses and from the mother's skin and those other places, it doesn't work as well. And the, the, the research on this is overwhelmingly positive. Now, nobody can deny that what I'm saying is true. This is not yeah. just some wacky idea. So, What's the answer to this? Well, at the very least, someone should figure out some way as it went soon after the baby is born. Is to, I mean, if I were the mom or if it were my daughter, I would say, well, just stick your finger in there, in your <laughs> vagina, and give it to the baby. Right? Yeah. It's no big deal. And people, oh, ooh. But really, that's <laughs> anybody. That's, that's what Mother Nature, if, I, mean, if, if you, I caught my own kids coming out. If you've seen what happens in birth, that's not a big deal. Exactly. And, and, and even a little bit of poopiness is probably not off the, the, the chart, mm -hmm. right? But at least the vaginal floor, a good finger. Well, so I call it, in a, you know, perineum is the, the person's crotch, right? Right. And so I call it the perineal picnic. And it's a, and it's a, a celebration, a celebratory eating uh, for the baby. And, uh, right. and then, of course, breast milk is extremely important because the, the milk of the mother feeds the germs and the germs feed the baby. That's a simple way of putting it. Yeah. It is a very simple system, but it's so important for people to understand that because the idea that the baby is digesting the milk is not actually true now where we understand that. Wow. The, baby, the, the germs, the flora of the baby, the bifidobacteria, the, these certain kind of lactobacillus, and they're the only germs that know how to eat the, the lactose in, in milk. And so then those germs break down the lactose and feed the baby. So the idea that formula is the same is not so. It's just not. Uh, we actually put a little bit of lactobacillus infantalis probiotic on uh, my wife's nipples. Yeah. Uh, for, the, for the first nursing, just to, just to make sure that, that the right stuff was there with the natural breast milk and uh, you know breastfeeding is, is amazing and, and there are still some times when it just it, it won't happen you know, some mothers don't produce milk and things like that and there's there's great debate online about what do you do if, if you're not producing milk and you need to feed your baby 
And it, it's a tough one, but but the average formula out there sure has some room for improvement. And uh, uh, do you have any advice there for, for people who, who need to replace milk with something else? Well, um, not soy milk. No, th- thanks for saying that. Of, of course not. Um, it's a t- you're right. It's a tough. It's a tough issue. I don't have an easy answer. Okay, uh, that's all right. I, I, in the Better Baby book, I, I did my best there. I did a bunch of research, and, and there's some things you can do with raw liver and egg yolks, and it, it's it's not ideal, but uh, it, it's worth it's worth paying attention rather than just buying a can of whatever's on sale at the store and, and assuming it's going to work. It, it requires deep thought. We'll put it that way. Well, one one of my patients, one of my the father of one of my old patients who had a new baby, was a very savvy guy, but not a doctor. And he, um, the baby was having a terrible time with feeding, and it was getting a special formula because it wasn't gaining weight, and they didn't want to use the breast milk. I can't remember what the story was, but he got in this enormous battle with the with the doctors, and he did his homework and, and documented all this and. And they gave him a very hard time. So this was in a you know fancy hospital, and they were not up to date on all this kind of stuff, and and, um, and re, you know sort of really made it difficult because it was such a simple solution to give the baby the breast milk from the mother, and then you know supplement it with the, the germs and all that. Well, I have two more questions for you. Yes, the first one is about activated charcoal and. Uh, Full disclosure, I manufacture the, the finest particle size acid-washed uh, activated charcoal on the market, uh, and I, I use it myself extensively. Uh, wow. <laughs> uh, so I, I am familiar with it, and most most listeners, may, well, most many listeners may know that, and I, I've felt a huge difference in my own just quality of thinking by binding endotoxins and things like that. What do you use it for? I know it's in, in your presentation deck. Uh, what's your take on activated charcoal? W- what is it appropriate for? What's it not? And, and we'd have, we didn't talk about this ahead of time. I have no idea what you're going to say. I just I want to know what you have to say. Well, uh, it's, it's a very important question. Thanks for, and thanks for introducing yourself as the charcoal guy. I'm, I'm <laughs> really impressed. If you look, if you look on, on Amazon for activated charcoal, like 600 brands, you'd go nuts yeah. to figure out which one. So now we know just which one to take. So, so here's, a, here's a scenario. You have a person such as the boy I saw the other day, who has lots of symptoms of neuromuscular irritability. In other words, is uptight in various yeah. ways, both muscular and nervous, mm-hmm. hyper and all that. It's a very common symptom in the population of people who's listening to this conversation. <laughs> yeah, These are an indication of unmet needs for magnesium. Okay? And a certain, you can take magnesium pills then. So if you're going to do that, then... Um, you may also be a person who would st- want to try a little bit of an antifungal probiotic called mm-hmm. Saccharomyces boulardii, which is a type <laughs> yeah. of yeast, but it kills other yeasts. But when you do that, and if one of your symptoms from being uptight was being constipated, which is not unusual, you want to find out how much magnesium you can take before you come close to having an accident. Right. Mm-hmm. We, we call that disaster pants in, in, in the Bulletproof Protocols. Uh, disaster pants is, is the accident that happens yeah, with too right. much magnesium. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you want to take magnesium to bowel tolerance, it's called. Okay. 
And so the dosage stuff is in the material that I'll put on the on my drop in my Dropbox. Okay, and, but, and we'll we'll share that appropriately in the show so, notes for so everyone listening. Is, just come to the transcript; it'll be there for you. Yeah. Okay. okay. So then the idea is you need the magnesium to make sure you can poop. Mm-hmm. And now, if you have a die-off reaction when you take the antifungal medicine, because the, the yeasts die and they release their toxins, they make you more constipated often because the yeasts don't want to be in the toilet. So one of their tricks is to keep you from pooping. And so when they get mad, when they're being killed by this other yeast, they release this toxin. It makes you even more constipated. And now you're, you're feeling awful. You can't poop, so you need to take a lot of magnesium. But in the meantime, you take activated charcoal to get rid of the die-off reaction because it absorbs the toxins. And it is... And, and then once you learn how well this works, eventually you find that if you're just if you're just having a bad day, you can take some <laughs> activated charcoal. Exactly. Okay. So that's the, the take home from it. I mean, parents learn this about their kids. Um, yeah. You know, they they figure this all out in the heat of the battle, but then later on they're having a bad car trip, right? Uh-huh. And Johnny is in the back seat, just going nuts, and they give him a little activated charcoal. And bingo, it works. And it's not a medicine. It's not dangerous. You shouldn't take it all the time because it absorbs your food as well. But, but it's, it's really a wonderful, uh, wonderful thing. The kid behavior thing blows me away. I have an eight-year-old and a six-year-old. And, and if, if they're just acting out of sorts, like I, I know them and, and they're, they're good kids. And when stuff is just not right, you give them a little bit of activated charcoal. And like 10 minutes later, they're, they're themselves again. And there is a biochemical reason for it, and I don't necessarily know what it was, but whatever it was, it just stuck to the charcoal and they pooped it out, and I'm okay with that, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, you know all about charcoal. That's great. Well, my next question for you is the question that I've ended uh, every episode with uh, on Bulletproof Radio, and I'm really interested to to hear your answer. And and if if someone came to you tomorrow and, and they said, Sid, given your entire life, your entire career, everything you've done, what would you tell me if I said, I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being? Like the three most important things I need to know to just, just do everything better. What, what piece of advice would you have? I would say find a way that is pleasurable for you to stay active physically. That is, whether it's swimming or bowling or walking, especially walking, do a lot of that. Okay. Out, you know, do your mind. You don't have to. Uh, uh, there, there's a street that goes by our driveway, and people run around here on Sag Harbor in the summertime, even in the winter. And some of them have the most gruesome expressions on their faces. <laughs> I'd say if you, if, if you can't smile a little bit while you're doing this, don't choose that thing. Choose something that makes you happy while you're doing it. But so I think that's important. I think that meditation or some, some, some aspect of that kind of practice is good it's where you get yourself into this other space and have a, a, uh, another relationship with your body where you have a, a way of being both in it and out of it in a comfortable way. And uh, so I think that's good. And then I think going by the the dietary guidelines of the IFM meeting in 2014, which I'll put on the on our thing, is important. Uh, the, I, which, by, by the way, are are almost exactly in alignment with the Bulletproof diet. Like yes. I, I saw that, I'm like, hallelujah! Like, yeah. like this Nailed is good. It. So full yeah. endorsement there. 
So I think that's that's really, really important. You know, these days people say, oh, there's been so many changes in the way diets and this diet and that diet and everything. Yeah. And so at the IFM meeting in 2014, we had all these big wigs from all the academic places, all the people to do research on the Mediterranean diet and the vegan diet and that diet. And then the, the moderator wisely said, everybody has to come up to the board for the to the podium for the afternoon and find common ground. Nice. And see what we agree on. So the list that I'll put up there is that common ground. And I think now this is a keeper. I don't think it's going to change much yeah. anymore. Um, I think David Perlmutter's book is a good representation of it. Yes. As well. He wasn't there. He was out selling his book that day. But He's been a guest on Bulletproof Radio as well. In fact, there's a quote from him on the back of the last cookbook I did. So I love David Perlmutter. So he was on stage at, during that event? Yeah. No, he wasn't. Uh, he was out selling his book. Oh, he was out selling his book. You're saying, but, okay, cool. But, but, but his... The, the thing he put in his book very much reflected the consensus and the reasoning behind it. Excellent. So you had exercise that you like, you yeah. had meditation, and you had eat stuff that's compatible with humans. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that, that's a great list. And smile. Uh, <laughs> and smile. All right. You get a bonus one given all of your accomplishments. Uh, Dr. Sidney Baker, thanks for being on Bulletproof Radio. Where can people find out more about you? Is there a single URL or somewhere that, that I should send them? No, um, I'll put all my publications on the, um, the link that I put up uh, for them. Okay. But, but it's put the stuff there. Thank you. If you're listening to this now, I'm sure that there's a bunch of, of stuff that you wanted to, to get out of this where you're probably taking notes frantically except you're driving. So all of this will be transcribed for you. All you need to do is go to the Bulletproof website and go to the, the podcast transcripts for this episode and you can search it. You can find HTCs. We'll link to all the, the relevant uh, the companies and technologies we talked about, including the auditory processing stuff from Alfred Tomatis, all that stuff. We're going to link that for you. And there's a special presentation uh, from Dr. Baker that we'll have as well that contains uh, the specific things we talked about. So you don't need to worry about losing this info. It's there. It'll be there next year too. So uh, it, it'll all be there. And we're going to go to extra work on this one to make sure that, that it's, it's got just a, a full set of info because this is really valuable stuff from one of the luminaries in the field. Uh, Dr. Baker, thanks again for being on Bulletproof Radio. It was an honor to get to interview you for this long. And uh, thanks for your work. Well, it was, a, it was a tremendous pleasure, as I think you could tell. I, I just loved it. So thanks very much. And I hope we can stay in touch. Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. 
This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.